Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, if you have just joined us um, at Crosspoint this morning... Uh, we are in week three of a series that we've been doing. It's called Love Story. And uh, in this series, we've been exploring different themes from a book of the Bible called the Song of Songs. Uh, and if you just a little bit about Song of Songs, it's a, it's a book of ancient Hebrew poetry. Uh, and it talks about a love story between two people who we've been referring to as Solomon and, and Shulamith. And it, it kind of talks about their romantic, emotional, intimate, sometimes physical relationship. And so in the last couple of weeks, if you haven't joined us uh, yet, uh, we talked about attraction, we talked about courtship. You can go online and you can listen to those messages. Um, but of course, today, as you've probably picked up from the video, uh, we are going to talk about God honoring sex. Um, now, if you are here for the first time, I just want to let you know, this is not a typical Sunday at Crosspoint Church, okay? It's not like we talk, we break this one out every single week. Um, it does come up once in a while. Um, and, and of course, you, some of you maybe came a little bit later. We did give a PG-13 warning. So if you've got kids, we have a great children's ministry upstairs. Uh, it'd be great if they're teens, preteens, and whatnot. I think they will be okay. Um, yeah, and by the way, if you are a guest, yeah, uh, we're so glad that you are here. Um, <laughs> you just happened to land on the one week where you probably wouldn't invite your great-grandmother to church uh, with you. Hey, um, now I, I realize that this, this is a, a, a bit of a challenging topic for some of us. Uh, some of you, I think when you're growing up, your church's teaching about sex can be summarized in one word, and that word was no, okay? Um, but then you got married, and then it was yes, but, and the but meant you just didn't talk about it, okay? And that's essentially the teaching that you received uh, growing up. But, but we, hey, listen, we, we understand that we live in a world where we are receiving mixed and sometimes distorted messages about sex all the time. I mean, our culture is, is very confused about sex. Our, you might say our cu- culture is in many ways obsessed with sex. Um, I mean, people are hooking up on Tinder, we're swapping birthday suit pictures on Snapchat, uh, we're using sex to sell everything from body spray to cat food to liquid plumber. Okay, so we are a culture, and seriously, there are commercials about them. I'd say Google them, but uh, okay. Um, not at work. Okay, and yet for the church, uh, sex has, in many ways, has been tra- kind of taught, uh, treated as a taboo topic. And, and sometimes, rather than seeing God as the inventor of sex, uh, we've kind of portrayed him in, in church culture as a suppressor of sex. But here's the thing, is, is um, our culture and our church have sometimes been guilty of the same problem. And here's the problem. The problem is, it isn't that we affirm sex too much. The problem with both of us is we affirm sex too little. Because here's the thing. Sex was God's idea in the first place. God was the creator of it. God invented it. Uh, he invented it as something to be enjoyed within a covenant relationship. It's something that God put together uh, as a gift for married couples. It's beautiful, it's sacred, it's passionate, and it's pleasurable. So if you are a serious student of the Bible, you cannot deny this position. The Bible is in no ways at all silent about sex. As a matter of fact, if you were to s- discover all of, uh, if you were to read all of the ancient literature in the same day as the book of Solomon was written, all of the other uh, ancient literature would kind of treat sex as a taboo topic. 
not the Song of Solomon. Solomon is actually the, the one book that actually treats it uh, as, as, as something that's pleasurable and something that's enjoyable. Um, it is not a taboo topic in the Bible. And uh, if ever there was a day when the church needs to be talking about it, it's the day and age in which we live. Now, I, I just want to speak to the parents in the room just, just really quickly this morning. Can I, can I just encourage you as a parent? Um, I'm a parent. I understand this. Do not make this a taboo topic with your kids. Okay? It's, um, it, is inspo- it is so important that you speak to your kids about it openly and freely. It might be awkward at first. You might have to figure out if it's mom or dad having that conversation with which kid. Okay? But there is a point where I, I suggest you have to have this conversation. Uh, because here's the thing. They are going to hear about it anyways. I mean, you can bubble wrap your kid. You can put them in, in special schools. You can, you know, put them in the attic for 20 years. At some point, they are going to hear about it, and sometimes not from the, from the best sources. As a matter of fact, there's a study that was done uh, that says that um, by the time your child graduates from high school, he or she will have heard or seen over 14,000 depictions of sex from the media that they watch. 14,000. And of those 14,000, only 165 of those depictions will take the position of abstinence or being careful and cautious about sex. The odds should be in your favor. You should have conversations about this with with your family. So there's one Planned Parenthood uh, reported that uh, all girls who came in for abortions, of all the girls that came in for abortions, only 5% of those girls ever had a real conversation with their parents about sex. So it's important that we talk about this and talk about it in our family context, but I think it's also important that we, we have a conversation about this in the church because the world is talking about it, but it wasn't their idea. It was actually God's idea in, in the first place. So that's why we just think it's, it's really important that we dive into it. And so with this in mind, today we are going to talk about what is, what is God honoring sex and what does God honoring sex look like within a marriage relationship? And to do that, we're going to dive into the fourth chapter uh, of Song of Songs, and uh, here's the setting of what we're going to read. Very likely, the couple have moved past attraction, they've moved past courtship, and they are past their marital vows, and what seems to be happening, what seems to be very clear now, is they are actually beginning their honeymoon, or they're somewhere in the honeymoon relationship together. So this might be the first time, or one of the first times, where they are moving towards sexual intimacy. And so we're going we're gonna to listen to what they say to each other, and, and out of that, we're going to extrapolate, we're going to pull out some principles of God honoring sex in marriage. Four principles I want to talk about this morning. Here's the first principle if you're taking notes. There are bulletin notes with you. Here's the first one about God honoring sex is it begins early. It begins early. What I mean by this is that sex begins long before the bedroom. Hey, listen, before Karen and I were married, uh, we made the wise decision of doing some premarital counseling. And I, and our, I'll never forget, our premarital counselor made this one statement that has stuck with our mi- in our minds since the beginning. And it's just simply this. She said to this, you've got to remember, foreplay begins in the kitchen. Now, before your minds get activated, let me tell you what she meant by that, okay? She's saying this, as you go about your day, how you treat each other determines, determines if you are moving closer together or if you are moving farther away. In other words, intimacy in a marriage relationship, it's something that develops throughout the day. And, and Solomon, he understood this. Uh, what we're going to discover is that before moving towards physical intimacy, Solomon actually uses his words. He begins to poetically woo Shulamith. So I want to start walking through the text uh, this morning, starting at verse 1. And here's what he says to her. Uh, Song of Songs 4, verse 1. He says, How 
beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Yes, Solomon understood the power of words. Okay, he begins by calling his bride beautiful, right? And, and can I, I mean, I wonder if I could just take a poll here. How many women in the room would love for somebody to call them beautiful? Anyone? Okay. How many would just hate that? Don't call me beautiful. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, Solomon knows what he's doing here. He's, he's a master. And as a matter of fact, he does it three times in the first seven verses. Guys, if you're taking notes, write that down. That is very important. But then he begins describing what it is that he finds beautiful about her. Okay, he comments on her eyes, and he comments on her ears, on her hair. And I realize, I mean, you chuckled. I mean, these, these metaphors would not translate well. Okay, these would, these would probably be categorized as Hallmark Valentine greeting card fails. Okay, uh, but in his day, Solomon was a Pulitzer Prize winning prose author. Okay, and basically what he's telling her is this. He's, listen, your, your eyes, they are captivating. And I am so attracted to your hair right now, to your flowing tresses. In that day, Jewish women would have kept their hair up. They wouldn't have brought their hair down except in the privacy of their own home. And so now he gets to see her hair down. And the reference to the goats um, is just simply this. The goats in Gilead had jet black hair. And when they ran down the mountains in these big herds, it was like watching waves of the ocean. And what he's saying to her is, I love your raven black, beautiful, flowing hair. That's what he's saying. Makes sense, right? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 2. It says, Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Well, what's he saying? Okay, I like your teeth, right? They're really, really white. Thanks for the crest white strips. Uh, your breath smells good, okay? And bonus, all your teeth are there. That's awesome. Which, I mean, we take that for granted, but this was a day before dentists, right? So he's like, you've got all your teeth. Woohoo! I like your smile. Okay, uh, let's keep reading. Verse 3. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. By the way, pomegranate was an aphrodisiac. But anyway, what he's saying is that I want to kiss your ruby red lips, and I love your rosy cheeks. And she might have rosy cheeks because by now she is blushing. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. What's the point he's making? Well, the Tower of David was very tall. The Tower of David was very slender. And he's saying, you have a very long, elegant neck. And I love how the jewelry just hangs from it. Now, if you haven't noticed so far... Solomon is drinking her all in. And you may have noticed that he starts at the top and he's beginning to work his way down, okay? And he doesn't stop at her neckline. As a matter of fact, he keeps descending. Let's look at the next verse. Here's what he says. He says, your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are all together. Here it is again. Beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Okay, I, I, I just need to make a point here. It's really important. Have you noticed that for the first seven verses, they have not even embraced. They have not touched each other. 
So, so Solomon, he didn't come charging into the bedroom like a caveman. Like, oh, me, Gronk, you woman, we make love. You know, let's do this. Okay. No, he understood that before there is physical intimacy, it's important that there is emotional intimacy. Yes, he wants to go to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of incense. By the way, he's probably referring to specific parts of her anatomy. He's given them pet names, okay? And yes, he wants to do this all night long like Lionel Richie. But that is not his starting point. So he's not coming in grabbing and groping. Instead, he's wooing her. Now, I want you to think about this. What are fawns? Okay, I, I mean, not, we know what the fawns are, okay? But, but in real life, actual life, what are fawns? They're baby, they're baby deer, okay? How would you approach a baby deer standing in an open field among the lilies? Keep in mind, that baby deer are very skittish. They're nervous, they're unsure, which is probably how Shulamith feels in this moment. So would you run in and tackle the baby deer? No, because the baby deer would run away to the forest. Instead, you would approach the deer quietly, carefully, tenderly, and gently. And that's what Solomon is trying to do here. And so practically speaking, let's get really, really practical about our married lives here this morning. If you are a complete loser during the day, okay, if you are bullying, manipulating, mistreating your spouse, do not be surprised if you get the cold shoulder at the end of the day. And this applies to both husbands and wives. But here's the thing, if you're tender, if you're kind, if you're affirming, if you're loving, you will build trust, you will build security, and you will build intimacy. You will move closer together rather than farther away from each other. And, and can I just speak directly to the husbands for a minute? Okay, husbands, do you, do you understand, generally speaking, generally speaking, okay, women do not get turned on the same way that men do. There's an old saying that goes, men are like microwaves, microwaves and women are like crockpots, okay? Essentially, men are just like, boom, ready to go, like a microwave oven. Let's make some popcorn, okay? Whereas women, on the other hand, take longer to get warmed up to the idea. Men are also stimulated more visually, and women are stimulated emotionally and relationally. Now, these aren't just urban myths. There's actually evidence-based research that supports this. And of course, there are always outliers. There are always exceptions, okay? But generally speaking, these things hold true. That doesn't make men better than women or worse than women and the other way around either. That's not what it's saying. It's just that there are general differences, and Solomon is showing that he understands how Shulamith is wired. God-honoring sex begins early. It begins long before the bedroom. Now, I wondered if I, if I pulled the wives in the room today and I asked you this question, what is the sexiest thing your husband can do throughout the day? I wonder what your responses would be. Have you ever thought about that? And husbands, for the record, it is not when you get out of the shower naked and go, woohoo, okay? That's not it. It's not when you're posing in front of the mirror in your tidy whities showing off your butt, okay? flexing, okay? That is not sexy, okay? That's not what we're talking about here, okay? You might be surprised by the answer. The answer might be putting the kids in the bath at the end of the day and then tucking them in at night. The answer might be sending her little love notes by text throughout the day. The answer might be watching you serve selflessly and help other people. The answer might be praying with her and leading your family spiritually. You'll be surprised what your spouse actually finds sexy about you. 
And I could tell you, I'll, I'll tell you one of, one of Karen's responses was, because she's not here. Um, <laughs> no, we've talked about this. Uh, one of Karen's responses was, at one time, was installing baseboards in the house. You know those baseboards? Okay. Uh, when we first bought our house here in Edmonton, um, I had to renovate it in a hurry, and I painted it and flooring and all that, but the one thing I didn't time to do was the baseboards. And so we moved the furniture in, the baseboards were not done, and so we're staring at these baseboards for months on end. And it's like, oh, can you get the baseboards out? It's, it's really, it's a lot of work. You've got to pull the furniture out. It takes a lot of time to get the baseboards finally done. Well, one day I just decided, okay, I, I just got to get these baseboards done. Karen wants them done. It's a good way to serve her, and, and it makes our house look nice. So finally, I took a day off of work. I cleared out the furniture, and I started installing baseboards. Well, at some point in the middle of the day, she looks at me, and she says, you know what? Seeing you haul around those baseboards right now, I am so attracted to you. Cue the Barry White music. Boom, chicka, wow, wow. I tell you, for, for about a year in our marriage, uh, installing baseboards became a metaphor for something else. Right? I think we need to go install some baseboards here. Okay. <laughs> but, but there was a problem. The big problem was I ran out of places I could put baseboards in in the house. <laughs> it's like, all oh, the baseboards are done. What am I going to do? So it's secretly in the middle of the night, I'd be sneaking out, pulling off baseboards, throwing them back in the... No, that's not true. Listen, uh, God-honoring sex begins early. Intimacy grows throughout the day. That's the first point. Here's the second principle. Uh, God-honoring sex is freely given. Let's read verse 8. The next verse. Solomon says this. He says, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. What's he saying? He's saying essentially this. She is unassailable. I mean, he looks at her and she is so beautiful. She is so gorgeous. He is so much in love with her. She is so perfect. It's like, he says, it's like she's locked away in these northern peaks in Lebanon. These were the highest mountain ranges in that area, okay? And she's surrounded by these prides of lions and these dens of leopards. And he can't get at her. And he doesn't dare go there. All he can do is beckon to her and say, come to me. Come and be with me. And what he means is this. Is he's not going to force his way to her. Instead, he gently and he tenderly invites her to come to him. Because her love must be freely given. See, that's the thing about God-honoring sex. Is it's always invitational. It's not something that's forced. And Solomon completely understood this. This is why he took the time. This is why he was tender. He, you see, when you lead with time and tenderness, love will often be freely given. You cannot force your way towards romantic love. It cannot be coerced. It cannot be manipulated. And, of course, her response, if you, when we get to the end, you will find, we discover later in the chapter that she does, in fact, come to him. And I think this is also another important point, because here's the thing, God, is, God honoring sex is not something to be withheld, but it's something that's supposed to be shared. We, sh we actually should give freely to our spouses. The Apostle Paul, he talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4. He says, listen, husbands and wives, you need to share your bodies with each other. Your, your bodies actually belong to each other in a marriage relationship. So, so don't deprive each other of your sexual needs. See, here's the thing, friends. We all have needs. In, in, our, in our marriages, you all have needs. You have emotional needs. You have spiritual needs, you have physical needs, and you have sexual needs. And your spouse has sexual needs. And I want you to think about this. Your spouse's only legitimate 
outlet to meet their sexual need is through you. That's their only legitimate outlet. So if your spouse is a follower of Jesus, if your spouse is committed to you in a lifelong relationship of marriage, uh, they have no other alternative. You are the only legitimate way for him or her to have their sexual needs met. It's only through you. So in a marriage, there there is a sense of responsibility to meet each other's needs and to meet every need. So not just your sexual needs. We need to meet each other's emotional needs. We need to meet each other's physical needs, but we also need to meet each other's sexual needs. And that's the thing about marriage. Marriage is a self-sacrificing, loving commitment to care for each other. So do you know what your needs are of your spouse? And are you meeting their needs, whatever those needs are? And, and what, what, what should you be doing to meet your needs, their needs? It's, it's really important questions. And so here's the thing. If you are committed to meet, meeting each other's sexual needs, then you have to make an effort. And I know that this can sometimes be a challenge, especially if you've got busy schedules. Listen, if you've got kids, kids can be exhausting, okay? You have different work schedules, or work can sometimes be exhausting. So as unromantic as this sounds, I'm just going to give you one piece of advice. Schedule it in. Put it in your calendar. I, I, know, I know that sounds not sexy, okay? But here's the thing. There is a common myth that says this. Only spontaneous sex is good sex. And this is perpetuated by... Um, Harlequin romance novels and Fifty Shades of whatever, okay, and that's out there. It's only spontaneous sex is good sex. Uh, Listen, spontaneous sex is a really great idea. I don't disagree with that. Yes, absolutely. But if you wait for that spontaneous encounter, it probably will never happen. Here's the thing. You fail to plan is to plan to fail. So I, I would just say, you know, put it in your calendar. Get creative. Figure it out. Drop the kids off with the grandparents. Parents, install a lock on your door. Uh, buy your kids some noise-canceling headphones, okay? Okay, start making that mixed CD of love ballads, whatever it is. But plan for it. Make it happen. Do not hold it back. It's freely given. You need to give it freely to each other. So you've got to work at it if you're going to fulfill each other's needs. Here's the third principle about God-honoring sex. It's a delight. It's a delight. Let's read on. Here's what Solomon says. Verse 9, he says, you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. By the way, French kissing... The French didn't come up with this, if you read this verse. This is ancient Hebrew kissing here. Okay, your li- where was I? Uh, the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Well, clearly, there is, there is passion here. There is pleasure here. He finds her irresistible. She's stolen her heart. Some translations say, you have ravished my heart. Notice how he describes her love. He says it's delightful. It's pleasing. It's delicious. It's aromatic. Hey, listen, here is the good news for married couples here this morning. You can enjoy sex with each other. That's not a bad thing. It's not a perversion, okay? Sex in marriage is a good thing, an enjoyable thing. God is not the suppressor of sex. God is the inventor of sex. Sex wasn't just given to us for procreation. Sex was also given to us for recreation. Now, I I know this is kind of blowing minds, but I mean... uh, when Karen and I first got married, um, like we were, I was 21, she was 20, and 
after a few days on our honeymoon, after, you know, chasing gazelles and climbing mountains, etc., um, we looked at each other, and we just like, this is so weird. This just feels weird. Like, we get to do this. And we don't have to feel guilty about it, feel bad about it, but we think we should feel guilty about it and feel bad about it. We have to get our hearts and our heads around this thing, okay? But the reality is, we are allowed to enjoy this. How amazing is God that he came up with this idea? You see, James uh, chapter 1, verse 17 reminds us of this. It says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Sex is a gift from God. It is good. It is perfect. And we can delight in it. And we can give thanks into it, uh, for it. As a matter of fact, sex should lead us as believers in Christ to worship. We do not worship sex, right? Because sex is just a gift, right? We worship the gift giver, who is God himself. But as we partake in the gifts of our great God, it should turn our hearts towards thanksgiving and towards uh, praise. As a matter of fact, I, I recommend as married couples, after you have sex, before you go sleep that night, thank God for it. You know, say you're welcome. All right. Now, it is quite common today for people to say, well, yeah, I know. Like, sex is pleasurable. It's, it's like so important, right? And this is why you need to have sex with your partner before marriage, right? This is, this is probably why you should move in together before marriage, because you want to make sure that you are relationally or sexually compatible with the person before making a commitment, right? Because you want to ensure that you're going to have a lifetime of good, passionate sex with the person that you're going to marry. Uh, this is sometimes compared, uh, referred to or is compared to as a test drive, okay? So the idea is just simply this. Would you buy a car before taking it on a test drive. Well, no, of course not. You would test it out. So why would you commit to marrying a person without first taking that person for a test drive? Um, I understand the argument, but there are some problems with the theory. And let me just state a couple of problems with it. First of all, the person you're with, when, you, when they're just a car that's being test-driven, that person will feel like they're constantly being scrutinized and evaluated. They'll feel like they're trapped in an endless audition and you are the production agent. So in that type of a relationship, it's actually really hard to be truly authentic. It's, it's actually tr really hard to be open and honest about yourself, uh, to build trust and intimacy and security and all these things that are necessary for a healthy marriage and actually for, for actually a healthy sexual relationship. It's actually really difficult. So you're always wondering if you're going to be turned in for a newer model in that situation. Here's the second thing, is, is the difference between humans and cars is that cars don't have their hearts ripped out of them when you take them back to the car lot. It's a big difference. Now, as it turns out, couples who cohabitate are, are less satisfied in their relationships than married couples, statistically. And, and if a cohabiting, cohabitating couple ultimately marries, they actually have a higher percentage chance of divorcing than once you chose not to do that. The stats actually show that married couples do have better sex. Did you know that? Than singles? I was reading the other day about a study done by the National Health and Social Life Council. And they did this extensive survey of Americans' sex lives. And it's actually pretty phenomenal, some of their discoveries. But I just want to share four of them with you this morning. They're really interesting. Here's the first finding they found. Number one, sexually active singles have the most sexual problems and get the least sexual pleasure out of sex. That's what they found. Point number one. Point number two. Men with the most liberal attitudes about sex are 75% more likely to fail to satisfy their sexual partners. You're actually not 
fairly good at it, okay? Number three, married couples by far reported the happiest satisfaction with their sex lives. Number four, and this is most interesting, the most sexually satisfied demographic group are married couples between the ages of 50 and 59. Yeah, yeah, everyone 50 is like... And it just goes to show that, that sex is like good wine. It gets better with age. So find somebody over 50 and give them a high five. <laughs> we'll save that till the end. Number four, here's the final principle of God honoring sex. Is it sacred? It's sacred. What does that mean, that word sacred? Well, the word sacred means holy. It means to be set apart, to be different, to be special. It means to be pure and good. God-honoring sex is sacred. Let's read the rest of Solomon's words here, verse 12. He says to her this, You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. She's not his real sister. It's just a Middle Eastern way of saying a person from the nation of Israel. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. So it's interesting. Solomon refers to Shulamith, uh, a couple of things. Number one, as a locked up garden. And number two, as a fenced in spring. What does he mean when he's saying this? It's simply this. He's saying that she has kept herself for him. That she was a virgin before they were married. All of her fruits and her spices have been held back, have been locked up for his enjoyment. But now the wall has been torn down and he has full access to everything. See, Solomon and Shulamith both understood the sacredness of sex. They understood that God's place for sex was to be within a committed, lifelong covenant relationship. It was God's idea. God's got a purpose for sex, but he also has a place for sex. And so they waited, they waited, they waited until they were married and they were joined together in this lifelong covenant reunion. You know, up to this point in the relationship, as you read through the Song of Songs, the refrain has always been this. You've seen it appear a few times. It says this, do not arouse or waken love until it so desires. In other words, what it's saying is there's sexual love has a purpose. It has a place. It's this beautiful, sacred gift from God, but don't fan the flames. Don't add sticks to the fire. Don't let it grow. Keep it down. Keep it down because there's a place for it. Wait. It's sacred. God has a purpose for sexuality. But now, at this point, the gate has been opened. The fountain is accessible. The fountain is flowing. And Solomon has wooed her. He has approached her with kindness and tenderness. He has invited her to come down from the mountain to him. And finally, we get to the last verse. And here's how she responds in verse 16. She says, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. As your pastor, there are a lot of texts that I will unpack for you. This is not one of them. 
it is pretty clear what she is inviting him to do here. And what's interesting is this is how the chapter ends. It's like the ending season, uh, scene of a play. Lights are blacked out, curtains are closed, and the rest is just kind of left up to our imagination. There is, after all, some discretion here. There is some propriety here. There are things that they're not going to talk about. But then, chapter 5 begins. The curtains open, the lights come up, and here's what Solomon says. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. So it's interesting. Is, is we only have the before and after verses bookending the lovemaking. But I don't know if you've noticed the interesting fact about these verses. These verses occur in the exact middle of the book of the Song of Songs. Coincidence. Perhaps not. It is almost like there is, the author is putting a bookmark there and is reminding us of the sacredness of sex in the middle of the story. Friends, here's a question I, I want to ask us this morning as we close. And I think it's a question that God would ask of each of every one of us. I know it is. I know it is. And he would ask, do you want to honor the sacredness of this gift that's been given to you from God? In other words, are you willing to live sexually pure? Are you willing to treat this tremendous gift from God as something that is sacred and special? So no matter what stage of life you find yourself in, whether you're single, whether you're dating, whether you're engaged, whether you're married, whatever stage you find yourself in, and I'm not sure, you know, as, as I say this and as you, you hear about the sacredness of this, what's going on in your head and heart right now? I know that there's going to be mixed emotions in this room. Some of you are just celebrating this great gift. Some of you are mourning its absence. Some of you are maybe feeling guilt or regret this morning. I mean, maybe for some of you, you've been wrestling with your thought life lately. Maybe some of you, you, you find yourself uh, engaged in porn. Um, maybe today you, you're, you're sexually active with your fiancé or your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Or, or maybe you're married and you're in a, in a sexless marriage right now. And you find yourself entertaining uh, possibilities of an extramarital affair. And I think God would, God would come to you this morning. And I think his first response would be this. I see you. I know you. And I love you. And I'm for you. But I'm asking you, will you commit to living sexually pure? And if you're not right now, would you consider, would you be willing to make a spiritual U-turn? You know, Scripture says that God's kindness leads us to repentance. And God's kindness, his posture towards you is kindness. And he's saying, would you commit making a spiritual U-turn this morning, turning from what's killing you towards life, turning from darkness towards light this morning? Would you choose to walk in my ways and embrace my purposes and my plans for your life? Because here's the thing is, if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to make that spiritual U-turn, God is right there with you in that spiritual U-turn. Because here's the thing, what I've discovered is if you are willing, God is willing to work with you. You can begin again. Did you know that? You can be clean. You can be made holy. You can be washed. And I know this because the scripture says it's to be true. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus died. 
pay the penalty for our sins so that we, our sins might be washed away. And when we put our faith and our trust in Christ, his promises that he will cleanse us and renew us, and you can begin again. And I say this because I know this to be true personally. I've talked about this in the last couple of weeks. In, in, in my story, before um, I came to Christ, before I, I gave my life to him, I was very sexually active. And then I, I, I came to Christ, and he, he came in, and he washed me, and he cleansed me, and he changed me. And then I, I, I was going to be married to Karen years later. And this was a bit of a challenge, because Karen was a virgin, and I wasn't a virgin. But one thing we knew to be true, that the scripture says that if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. And for me, I, I just received that, and I knew that I was a new virgin in Christ. That Christ, through his blood and through his life, gave me the ability to begin again, to start new, to start fresh. And maybe this morning, that's what you need. Maybe this morning for you, Christ is calling you to turn away from darkness, to turn towards light, to receive his forgiveness, and just, just begin again. Wouldn't that be great? Instead of bearing the weight of guilt and, and shame and, and the struggle that's there, wouldn't it be great just to step into God's plan that he has for your life surrounding sexuality? And so the question, do you want to honor the sacredness of this gift from God? And so I, I want to just invite you this morning to pray. Uh, and I want to lead you in prayer today. If that's, your, if that's your journey, if that's your story here today, can you step into what God would have for you? Um, regarding your sexuality. So I'm going to get all of us to stand this morning. I think it, that's appropriate. It's good to, st to stand in the presence of God. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just lead you in prayer this morning. So I wonder if you could just bow your heads, close your eyes. And I think if, if you felt that you have moved out of God's plan of sexuality for your life, you're violating his will. You've, I just want to lead you in prayer this morning. And here's what you might pray in your hearts this morning. You might say this, Jesus, I know that I have sinned in this area. But I believe that you can and you will forgive me and wash me clean in your blood. And today I choose to turn from death to life, from darkness to light. I make a spiritual U-turn away from sin and towards you. And so, Jesus, would you forgive me for the choices I've made? Would you cleanse me and wash me? And now, as I step into the light and in obedience, would you give me the power, the power to live in obedience. And Jesus, I pray for everybody this morning who has made that choice, who have made that prayer of theirs. And I, and I pray, Lord, that uh, your Holy Spirit would just make very real to them. The reality is that if anyone is in Christ Jesus, they are a new creation, set free. I pray that uh, they would understand that there's no condemnation for them in Christ Jesus. 
And I pray that they would be filled with your spirit and with your power to be able to walk in obedience to what it is you're calling them to. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of new beginnings through Christ Jesus. And God, we thank you this morning for this incredible gift that you've given to your people. What an incredible gift given through us in Christ. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve all of the gifts you give us, but you give them freely because you're a great gift giver. And we just declare this morning we love you and we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us as we are. No matter who we are, no matter where we've come from, no matter what we've done, we are dearly loved by you and you invite us into relationship with you. And today we choose as your people to step into that relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.